Today's scripture comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 19, to chapter 2, verse 4. I am reading from the English Standard Version. So the two of them, that is, Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Just a note for our listeners. Uh, throughout the beginning of the service, King's Cross live stream and recording system was having some technical issues. And so the beginning of the sermon was cut off. Uh, but basically, uh, Pastor Sangmin began uh, the sermon like this. We are starting 2023 by walking through the book of Ruth. And the word or the theme that God has called King's Cross into for this year, 2023, is the word Grit. Angela Lee Duxworth is an author of a book titled Grit, and we'll pick up the sermon as Pastor Sangmin gives her definition of the word. Uh, she says this about grit, and I quote, the ability to persevere in pursuing a future goal over a long period of time and not giving up. It is having stamina. It's like being like the Commanders fan, my football team. It will never win, but you're just committing, right? Uh, every year we're convinced we're going to do better. But it's sticking with the future day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years and working really hard to make that future reality. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. I love that. I think many of us love that idea, and we love the idea of trying to be more gritty, or we love people in our lives that are gritty. At least we admire them. We might be annoyed of them, like they run a lot, they do a lot of things, but we are inspired by them. Yet biblical grit, because this is church, we're looking things through a biblical lens, biblical grit isn't just simply about not giving up. Like that definition is, is good, but that's not all of it. Or having great endurance, like Angela Duxworth, what she's talking about. Although those are, again, wonderful qualities. Grit for God's people begin at the river. We talked about this very first sermon of this year, Psalm 1. Like the trees planted by the streams of living water. You, you like that illustration? It took me a while to draw that, right? Trees, small, big, 
trees, by the streams of living water, our primary job as Christians, in order to truly become greedy as people of God, it's going to begin by the river. Our, our primary job as followers of Jesus, in order to truly become greedy, is to be rooted in God's grace, his generosity first. And only when we have experienced and continue to experience God, we become people of true grit. So this whole theme of only true grace would transform you and I to truly gritty people. We talked about that. And no story throughout the scripture. I was thinking we plan a preaching calendar year ahead. Hold on one second. This is really bothering me. Give me one second. Um, we planned this a year, I planned our preaching together a year ahead, and I was thinking, what book, what book? And, and, and it hit me, Book of Ruth. It's such a wonderful book. Yes, Ruth is gritty. Ruth is more grittier than most, most characters in Old Testament. Yet even Ruth, her grittiness, her ability to persevere and endure comes because there is overarching, behind-the-scenes, sovereign God, author of life, working things out according to his good purposes. This is why we're in the book of Ruth. We were in chapter 1 last week. We're going to be in chapter 1 and a little, little bit of chapter 1 and then a little bit of chapter 2. So the story of Ruth, just for the context, takes place in at the time of Judges. Judges, if you have not read the book, it's, it's a very depressing book. No king. Everyone does according to what they believe is right. Chaos. Imagine some of you guys are teachers, kindergarten, you go to school, you tell everybody no rules today, you do whatever you want. Can you imagine how chaotic that would be? That was sort of, in a, in a more extreme way, the time of time for God's people, right? No real rules, structure, no true king that could really lead them. So there's all this chaos. And in that context, the author tells us this man, Elimelech, this Jewish man from the city of Bethlehem, He's married, he has two sons, but they hit, they hit a rough times. There's a famine in the land of Bethlehem. So he decides to move his whole family to a other town, a, a town of Moab, non-Jewish town with its own rules and its own worship. And this was a big deal. We talked about, you know, we move all the time. Many of us move to this city for a job, for a better future, for our children, but back in, in those days, people didn't move. Jewish people did not move unless they were forced out of their city because so much of where they lived was connected to their faith, the, the temple, the priest, the sacrifice. But it was a big deal that this, this family moved. And Elimelech, they moved to Moab, and Elimelech's wife, Naomi, while living as an expat of, of a foreign land in Moab, she not only loses her husband, Elimelech, we don't know why, we don't know what happens, he's dead. And we find out her two sons, they get married. They find Moabite women as their wives, which is also a thing we talked about last week, not a great news for someone of Jewish culture. You wanted to marry within faith. Been married for 10 years, no children. Again, another depressing fact. And then the two sons all of a sudden also pass away. We talked about this last week. So Naomi, the wife, having lost everything, living in a foreign land, 
with a sense of deep sadness and with a glimmer of hope, decides to return to Bethlehem and her daughter-in-law named Ruth decide to join her. The other daughter-in-law decide, I'm going to return home and Ruth is with her. Because she's heard from Moab that the Lord has visited his people and gave them food. So with shame and pain and with sense of hope, she heads back to Bethlehem and she arrives in Bethlehem. That's what we read in chapter 1 at the end of it. And as, even as we enter chapter 2 of the story, there are only four chapters. We're already maybe 25% there or 30% there. The spotlight is still bright on Naomi because it is Naomi who went away and has come back. The chapter, this chapter of her life that closes at, the, at this point has been full of pain, grief, and uncertainty. And the question that really is still hangs in the air and the question as she arrives home is this. Can Naomi ever recover from this? That was the question, chapter 1. Still the same question. Will Naomi's life ever be any better? And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 1. And the author sets the tone of chapter 2 by letting his audience know that there's a man named Boaz. Everyone say Boaz. It's like a fun name to say, Boaz. Boaz, and he is, there are two important facts about Boaz that the author wants to let us know. One, he is part of the family of Naomi's dead husband. We'll talk about that a little more and the significance, cultural significance later. But two, he is a man who is worthy. Everyone say worthy. Uh, the worthy word in, in Hebrew is ka'el. Everyone say ka'el. And Kael, which uh, literally means someone of great substance. I love that. I wish someone would describe me as someone of great substance. That's actually an amazing description. Someone of great substance. He's not just rich. He's not just influential. He's not just powerful. He's a man of great character. He carries himself well. That's what the author tells us. And as Ruth's story unfolds, these two facts, him being part of Elimelech's family and him being a man of worthiness, will begin to have greater significance as we move forward. So just have that in the back of your head. Spotlight is back on verse 2 on Naomi and Ruth. Dust has settled. Naomi is finally back in Bethlehem. And really, um, I've been living in Korea 17, 18 years now. Um, and I sometimes go back every two years, every three years, I get to go back home. This past summer, I went home, which is Virginia and U.S. And every time I go home after you know, having lived in city and Seoul, I am always so surprised how I have no idea how things work in U.S. Like simple things like going to a restaurant. I'm like, do I pay at the counter? Do I sit myself? Do I tip my ice cream person? Do I tip my barista? I mean, everybody wants tip. Last time I was, I was like, whoa. I started tipping everybody. And I was like, it's so expensive. And my friend's like, dude, you don't tip, you know, you're, these people. You just tip people that serve you. If you go to like a restaurant and they sit you, they serve you food, you tip them. I'm like, everybody has different ideas, right? One time I went to Best Buy. Best Buy is like this electronic store if you're not from the States. 
My parents had something, they needed to fix it. I go to Best Buy, try to get it fixed. I go up to the counter, I see this, this young gentleman, right? And I'm like trying to act normal, trying to be like, I'm from here, right? I'm feeling all like a foreigner. But I come here, I'm like, do you guys, excuse me, do you guys have uh, after service? And then they go, what is after service? I realized after service is like the Korean term for warranty. The guy's like, looked at me like, are you, are you an exchange student? I'm like, no, no, I'm from here. Warranty, I mean. The, the reverse cultural shock is real. Like, like, you know, Josh lived in Asia for eight years. Going back to Seattle would have, been, would have been shocking. Like, my parents come to Korea, and they're so Korean. They never speak English in America. But you know, guess what they did? The first thing they did in Korea, they start speaking English to, like, random Korean people. I'm like, why do you do that, Mom? Why? Why would you do that? They have a hard time. And I remember, imagine Naomi trying to settle down. Been away for a long time. Worship wasn't part of their life. Lost her husband and her two sons. Now she's here with her daughter-in-law. It's embarrassing because she's not a Jewish daughter-in-law. And they're just trying to survive. Again, reversal culture shock is real. On the other hand, Ruth is a complete foreigner. No family, no connections. She's left everything to follow her mother-in-law, who's at best depressed. They got to make life work between them. So in verse 2, Ruth goes to Naomi as they're settling in, tells her, I'm going to go look for food. I'm going to go see if I could glean from someone's land. You see, within the law of God, Israelites' law, God had designed a welfare system into the law. So during the harvest season like this one, the owners of the field were to leave some of the crops uh, for, that, for the, those that were less fortunate to be able to come and glean from. That was part of the system. Not everyone followed the rule. Not everyone did this. But, but Ruth, out of faith, says, I'm going to go and see if someone who's generous would let me glean from their field among their workers. So author tells us Ruth happened to glean from the field that was owned by Boaz, right? It's almost like everything's kind of setting up. A kin and a man of great substance. And that very day, Boaz was out there in the field checking on his workers. And every great love story. Everyone loves, anyone love love stories? Nobody? Nobody loves love stories in our church. Like, we are, yes, so so funny. <laughs> you guys don't love love stories. I love love stories, okay? Um, there's this beautiful, right, every, every love story. It's, it's beautiful when you watch movies, right? Movies like um, Notting Hill or When Harry Met Sally or Sleepless in Seattle, like these beautiful stories. Charles and Yuna came over last night. We're hanging out, and they were telling us how Yuna fell in love with Charles, and Charles, uh, Charles kind of fell into marrying her. I'm kidding. <laughs> They have a great story. <laughs> That's kind of accurate. But they have a great story. And Lois said, I loved it. I was like, this is And they were like, you know, it's not, it's not that great. And we're like, it's awesome, right? We love hearing love. Eunice laughing because it's true. Um, we love stories. We love stories of people falling in love. So it's easy to look at the story of Ruth and Boaz and assume this is simply a Jewish love story. But friends, that's not true at all, actually. Although the author mentions nothing about God's involvement thus far, 
it's quite clear that this isn't simply a common love story between a lover between two lovers. It's actually a story with a greater purpose in mind. We talked about that last week, how the story began about the setting of judges and how the story ends with a list of boring Hebrew names that leads to David, eventually from David, Jesus. They need a king. A king comes. That's what the author is trying to show us, that this is far bigger than just love story between two people. And really, when you look at the story, you can't help but to realize Naomi and Ruth didn't just happen to arrive in Bethlehem at the time of the harvest. Ruth didn't just happen to come to Boaz's field at that moment. Boaz didn't just happen to visit his workers while Ruth was gleaning from that field. None of these things were just happening by chance. Again, God is behind the scenes bringing these pieces together to write this wonderful story of redemption. Friends, in the same way, when you think about your life and my life, lives of our children, lives of people that we love, whether you recognize it or not, whether you want to agree or not, I believe God is this magnificent, magnificent story writer, storyteller, and the story he wants to tell through you and I is far greater than anything we can write on our own. That's really the main point of today's sermon. I'm, 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 almost, I'm not almost done. I'm sorry. I'm, I was about to lie to you. I'm not almost done. I'm halfway there. Yet whenever life gets, gets hard, we hit these roadblocks or what seems to be roadblocks. Or whenever frustration or hopelessness sets in, perhaps challenge at work, challenge in our marriage, challenge in parenting, prolonged singlehood, singlehood that you don't want to be in, or something else. You're frustrated, you're angry, you're upset. The temptation, the temptation in, in those moments is to assume that God is not holding the pen. In fact, God is not even there. It's tempting to assume, just like Naomi in chapter 1, call me Mara because God's hand is literally against me. It's easy to fall into being just like Naomi. Anyone been there? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. I've been there. I've been there. You guys know I've been there once or twice in recent years. In fact, when Lois and I left our beloved community, like I was at this church called Jubilee for 10 plus years. And I was literally like Prince of Jubilee. I'm not just making this up. Literally, I could not do no wrong. We were talking about this yesterday, Charles and Yuna. And like literally, I, I was like underperforming, but it didn't matter because I was like this kid that everybody was like, he's not going to be a pastor. And I became a pastor and I was just beloved. When we left that community to several years ago to plant this church, we knew it wasn't going to be easy. When you do a church planting class, everyone tells you how church planting is so hard. You should quit if you're not called for it. I'm like, why are we doing this class, right? But what we didn't know, we knew it wasn't going to be easy, but what we didn't know was how hard it was going to be plan a new church. Like, if I'm really honest with you, in my mind I thought, hey, I did okay at Jubilee. I think it's going to be okay. We just figure out, figure things out, get people together, we'll worship. Um, and Lois and I were not prepared prepare for the challenges of church plant, church drama, brokenness, and painful experiences. You guys, some of you guys know what, we, what many of us have gone through together. 
trying to, trying to establish our church. Some of you guys have been with us, you know, past five years. Know how challenging it's been for a community to get to where we are today. People ask me, hey, so Josh asked me on Saturday, we had breakfast. Josh is like, are you happy? I'm like, who asked that question, Josh? I'm like, no one's happy. But I was like, Josh, but I am content. I looked at Josh and said, I'm content because we have been on a journey as a church plan. We have been on a journey as a family and, and, and people that, that walk in this door, they might know what we've been through, but I know and I'm content because God's been, because I know the journey. And some of you guys, to you guys, this, this community is so precious because you have been on this journey with us. But, but I'm not exaggerating when I say we went through the church planting grave and back. After all that craziness, I, we took a little break. Lois and I came back saying, hey, if we're going to go, if we're going to go, we weren't even sure if we're going to come back to lead this community. When we came back, we told ourselves, hey, we, we got to go back even if it means church is going to close down. That's, that's how intense it was for us. And I remember at the height of all that drama and COVID and challenges of leading our church, I had told God many times, and when I, you know why I love Ruth? You know why I love Naomi? I don't think Naomi's that bad because I was Naomi. I was like, I know exactly what Naomi's saying. Call me Mara. You know, I felt like, during, during those years, I felt like, man, God is punishing me for my arrogance. God is really after me. God really wants to shape me. Like, I, I remember feeling that way. The disappointment, bitterness, anger, grief. I mean, I could write a book and I think it will sell, right? About, about all that we've gone through as a young church. But now that I've had time to process, but this is two years ago. Some of you guys are like, okay, I'm not coming back to this church. This is, this is two years ago, guys. Two years ago. This is what I can share. Now that I've had time to process what we've gone through, I'm still processing. I can semi-confidently say, semi, I, I, I want to semi- Confidently say, God was present through it all. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. And, and, and through our grief and anger and frustration, pain and doubt. Again, not saying it was a necessary process, because I think that's what we do. It was needed. Not saying if I were to do it again, I wouldn't change a thing. No, I would change many things. Because we live in the gray. One thing I can say, I can't say many things about what we've experienced. One thing I can say is God was present. And God is, was, is, and, and still writing the story, not only of my life, your life, but our community. I share this because there is healing when you share your pain. That's one. But more importantly, if any of you guys are sitting here feeling extremely lonely, extremely abandoned, you feel like God has called you to this city or called you to this workplace, called you to this marriage, and you're like, God, what am I doing here? God, did you even send me? God, was that right decision? No matter how painful and frustrating you may feel, and I do not want to belittle those emotions, and it's okay, right? Naomi was like, and I think that was actually rather brave, that Naomi was at least honest 
I just want to tell you, as someone who's gone through the fire, not someone with this theory and theology and I have the Hebrew, no. Let me just tell you, by, for a person who went through it, just tell you that you are not alone, that you are not abandoned, that you are not left to rescue your own self. And not just my experience, but throughout Scripture, we see God who is wholeheartedly committed to His people, don't we? God who is in the fire, in the den of the lions. God who is on the boat, in the storm. God with us. Jesus, His name is Emmanuel, right? And, and, and so I want to just, that's, maybe that doesn't make you feel better. Maybe you're like, so what, Pastor? I mean, but just, just hear me out that you're not alone. And I hope that is a little bit of encouragement as we walk through this story. But also let me say this about God being the ultimate writer and the author of the story, which is just as evident throughout the scripture. Friends, God is wholeheartedly committed to his good purpose in each of us. This means, friends, don't let anyone convince you that God exists for your vision, for your comfort, for your sense of success, for your wealth, for your marriage. Because I've heard that message a lot, and I think that's a message of our culture, Pixar movies, live your life, YOLO, churches do that. What's your vision? Name it, claim it. That's simply not scriptural. You could believe in that God. You could even worship that God. You could even come and pray and sing to that God. But that is not God of Scripture. This is why in our passage, even though Naomi wants nothing to do with Yahweh, Naomi is just living because she can't die. Have you met people that are simply living because they're afraid to die? That's Naomi in the story. There is no worship in Naomi's life. There's no desire Right? Ruth says, I'm going to go. Naomi says, yeah, you go. I'm going to stay home. Naomi's just not going to do anything. It's like Jonah at the end of the story. I'm going to just sit here, watch. I'm going to stay bitter towards God. Whatever God does, I don't care. Her faithlessness, her lostness, if you notice the story, does not repel God. It does not, her attitude towards God does not discourage God from moving his good purpose forward. Ruth chapter 2, Boaz, Ruth, meeting together. And friends, God has a wonderful plan for your life, four spiritual laws. Anyone came to th faith through four spiritual laws? God has a wonderful plan for your life, yes. That's 100% biblical, yet that does not mean what God desires to accomplish through you will always be what you want out of your own life. In fact, God's vision for your life is so much bigger than your greatest longings and desires. Three-car garage, white picket fence in the suburbs, or a nice six-bedroom apartment by the Han River, your kids going to Harvard or Yale, meeting this wonderful person, imaginary person you've imagined for years and years. You fill in the blank, your dreams, your desires, whatever you're daydreaming about. As things get busy and you, you, you zone out, what are you daydreaming about? What do you often think about? 
he's not, he doesn't exist. It's a cricket sound. He does not exist in order to make those things reality. In fact, you may not even like that. You may say, man, I don't like this. I want to get up and leave because I don't agree with the God who is insistent on his purpose over my life. It's my life, isn't it? And you may still want to pursue your own vision for your life, but I'll tell you now, right now, for someone who's gone through that journey, God of the scripture will not budge. You're wasting time trying to fight against God's purpose over your life. But why? Why is that true? Pastor Tommy, why is that true? If God is so loving and so compassionate, why does he insist on me that, he, that I fulfill his purpose, not mine? If he's so loving, if he's so kind, why does he just let me live my life? Why not a six-bedroom apartment by the Han River? It's because often... What captivates my heart and your heart are the very things that cause this chaos in our lives. You think about it. Often the things that captivate our hearts are the very things that are destroying us. That's been the human struggle from the very beginning. It's not just your story, my story. That's Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. That's Genesis 4. That's Genesis 4. The whole book of Genesis People saying, I want this, and that very thing destroys their life. From Adam to Abraham to Sarah to Isaac to David to Solomon, when given the choice, the more times than not, we choose the very things that are not good for us. I do this, you do this. Simple things like choosing what to eat. Anyone regret last night ordering fried chicken over some chimac? Maybe some of us. What we consume. Anyone regret binging 10 hours of, what's the hot show now? What's the dating show? They're in like the Temptation. What is the the Korean version? Whatever that is. You binge for 10 hours. You're like, oh. Like, what did I just do with my life? Like, Like, really? Or that three-hour session on Instagram or TikTok, just mindless scrolling, and you get to some weird things. Like three hours after, you're like, what am I looking at? Who we choose to date, or how we choose to work, or what we work for. We're often lost about what is truly good for us. You couple that with a culture, our current culture, that is in love with the idea of success. Our culture, our society, global, I'm talking about global, not just Korea, we celebrate winners regardless of how they got there. Think about politicians. Think about U.S., the presence we had in the past. I'm not making a political statement, but really think about the quality of people. We celebrate winners without thinking about who they are or how they got there, celebrities, artists, pastors. Think about who we celebrate. Yet throughout the scripture, we see God who is much more concerned, not with success. I'm very much concerned about success of our church, but God is not. But he's really concerned about process. How, am, how is Hangmin doing? What's in his heart? Does he really care about his people? Does he just want to fill the seats? 
Doesn't make sure you pay bills. Too real, too much, I'll pull back. But God is really concerned about the process, not success. Why did the Israelites, if you think about the story, the Israelites that were called, God said, go to the promised land, we'll take you there. They wondered and wondered and wondered, and it was like short distance. They could have just gotten there in a month, or maybe a week. Years and years, just wandering in the wilderness. If God was all about results and success, they would have gotten there. Moses would have seen the promised land. But no, God says, no, you're going to be here for a while until you realize I don't just want winners. I want people that love me, that their heart is after me, the things that I care about. Listen to Oswald Chambers, classic devotional writer. I think he's definitely classic. He says this, What we see as only the process of reaching a particular end, God sees as the goal itself. Let me just give him a moment to, to, to read that because I think we're, we can just read it and just, just go. What we see as only the process reaching a particular end, whatever that is, guys, God sees as the goal itself. In fact, what you and I call preparation, preparing, getting ready, God sees as the goal itself. Do you want to know God's purpose for your life right now? Like, anybody want to know God's purpose for your life? You guys are like, I don't want to know God. Nobody loves love stories. Nobody wants to know God's purpose. Just here hanging out. We'll just go get lunch. No. We want to know God's purpose, right? Yes? A little bit? Can we? Yes? Okay, I'm forcing you guys now, but yes. Like something you can truly hold on to. Like something that's practical. Something you can meditate on. Do you want to know? God's purpose for your life and my life at this very moment is to help you and I recognize that He is the Lord of life. That He is the author of life. That we have very little control over even our little lives. Which can be extremely frustrating. Yes, we love control. We love the idea of setting our goals and achieving them. But on the other side of the coin, it could be actually extremely liberating to say, I'm not the author, I'm not the writer, I'm just part of the story. To know that we have a wonderful author, a wonderful perfecter of our faith, a provider, an imaginative writer, creative God, who is writing our story. And if you don't believe me, read Ecclesiastes. I read Ecclesiastes through my trial. I'm like, oh, I don't even know life. You can't control life. Life will not be controlled. Life is not to be won or success. Life is a gift. And when there's a gift, there's a giver. So friends, I'm wrapping up. You're like, man, this is not a half sermon. This is a full sermon. Yes, this is a full sermon. Friends, the lesson of our passage today is, is, is rather simple. What we're trying to get out of Ruth, end of Ruth 1 and beginning of Ruth 2, it's not complex at all. It's very difficult. That God be worshipped. He will never be against us. That's one. Not because we are worthy or good. Not because we deserve his grace or love. But because, friends, this is the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, God with us. He came into our ghetto. He came into our neighborhood. He came into our broken world. He came to Detroit. Detroit's a tough city. 
into our brokenness to show us that he is the Lord of all things. Yet Jesus did not demonstrate his lordship with force. If you think about kings and, and dominion and people taking power, most earthly kings or presidents or dictators, they'll take it by force. They'll threaten you. They'll hurt you. They'll scare you. But Jesus did not take his throne, take his place with violence, anger, threats, fear. He came and laid down his own life for us. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be called the righteousness of God. Therefore, friends, he is truly worthy to write your story and mine for his great purposes, not ours. So perhaps the most important question as I'm really done. I'm really done. I'll do this. Perhaps the most important question that God may be speaking to us now is that will you surrender? Are you okay not writing your story? Are you okay not having control over your life because he has? I believe that's the lesson of, part of the lesson the book of Ruth is trying to teach us. Let's pray. 250, that was full seven. I'm sorry. Not bad, not bad. Not three o'clock. Let me pray. Lord, um, would you speak to us, Lord? We've come, and all of us come from different places, different um, season. We have different desires and dreams and ideas about control and future um, and, and different areas of, 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 or maybe different places in our faith. Some of us have been with you for years. Some of us are new. Some of us are interested, but quite not there. Uh, yet, Lord, the, the greatest comfort is that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith, all of it. Not just what we want, not just the portions that we desire, all of it, Lord. So would you take your rightful place? Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts, especially for some of us that are really struggling about what we want out of life, what we're looking for, what we want to experience. Would you soften our hearts? Would you regenerate whatever that needs to be regenerated in our hearts to hear from you, Lord? Thank you for who you are. Just let me pray. Amen.